Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Daniel Mark Epstein, author of The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House. Daniel Mark Epstein, author of The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House. Why'd you decide to write about William Franklin? Um, I thought that was a very important part of Benjamin Franklin's life that had been neglected. And um, I'm interested in the entire picture, a full-length portrait um, of uh, Benjamin Franklin. And I think that um, of all of the aspects of Franklin's life, his private life, uh, his relationship with his wife and his, his children um, has been underplayed. And, and, and my books always begin with questions and mysteries. And I thought that uh, William Franklin was a, a very mysterious part of um, the portrait of Ben Franklin. So I was attracted to that. When did he come into the picture? Uh, well, he was, he was born in, um, in 1730. Um, and Ben Franklin was 24 at the time. Uh, he was illegitimate. It was very unusual for, um, for a man of Ben Franklin's class uh, and uh, station in life um, to bring up an illegitimate child. And, um, and yet he did that. Um, the, uh, the identity of the birth from mother remains a mystery, um, which is another fascinating part of, the, part of the puzzle. How could that be? Very difficult. Um, I mean, imagine a man of that sort of prominence. By the time he was 30, 35 years old, he was, you know, he was one of the best known uh, entrepreneurs, inventors in the colonies. Um, and he had the son that people suspected might be illegitimate um, and had enough enemies who would like to have dug up that dirt on him. And yet no one has ever, to this day, no one has discovered who William Franklin's birth mother really was. Was Benjamin Franklin married when William Franklin was born? Uh, no, he was, uh, he was courting Deborah Reed, who was his childhood sweetheart. But she was actually married, um, and her husband, uh, her husband had disappeared, and um, the laws being what they were in those days, uh, Benjamin Franklin couldn't get married to Deborah Reed until, uh, until this guy showed up, or until they were divorced. Um, so they had a common law marriage, but, but even that had not, um, uh, they had not made that arrangement at the point when William Franklin uh, was born. So that was quite a drama there between Deborah Reed, who eventually became his common law wife, uh, and Benjamin Franklin over whether or not this child was going to be a part of their lives. So was William a baby when he yes. was introduced to Deborah? Yes. Uh, he brought her, I mean, Benjamin Franklin brought the baby uh, home uh, shortly after they had um, taken up housekeeping together. Um, and there he was, and, um, and she loved him, and she was a good mother to him. So what kind of a father was Benjamin Franklin to William? Benjamin Franklin describes himself as an indulgent father, and uh, I think he was a very, very attentive, uh, interested father. Um, he, you know, Benjamin Franklin was very interested in education, um, being self-taught and autodidact, as so many of my biographical subjects have been autodidacts. Um, and I think that, that he, he thought of the, having this son uh, as an opportunity to try out certain of his ideas about education. And, um, and he, he made sure that, uh, that William Franklin, uh, from the very beginning, had the best tutors. Um, and when he was old enough, uh, he went to a classical academy and learned Latin and Greek and um, horsemanship. And, um, and Benjamin Franklin really treated his adolescent son 
um, as more of a younger brother than, than as a son. So it was a very, it was a very intimate uh, relationship, and I think he was a very good father. Uh, Benjamin Franklin and Deborah had a daughter together? Later. It was just one? Yeah, they had one daughter. Um, the daughter was born when William Franklin was about 10, um, and uh, she was re also remarkable. Um, um, very intelligent, beautiful, um, high-spirited, um, and um, William Franklin loved his younger sister and vice versa. And all the, although the, the family um, endured all sorts of strife uh, during the Revolution, um, William Franklin and his sister Sally uh, remained good friends until, until he passed away. And you, you write in your book that William Franklin was with his dad when he did the kite experiment? Yes, yes. And actually, um, I remember when I was a child seeing a woodcut of, um, of Benjamin Franklin and this little boy flying the kite together in the storm, which of course was one of the early experiments proving that lightning and electricity were the same thing. And I was very taken with that, um, although it's sort of misleading because actually William Franklin was 22 years old and his father um, in his 40s when, the, when, that, uh, when, the, when the kite experiment actually took place. Uh, it does give an indication of how close the two of them were. They worked together in politics. They worked together in their scientific experiments. William actually made important contributions in terms of um, the discoveries of, uh, about electricity. Um, and I wondered when I was a little boy, what would it be like to have somebody like Benjamin Franklin as a father? A little intimidating. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Uh, to, to say the least, but, but I think, again, uh, Benjamin Franklin had a great deal of charm. He loved his son, William, um, and probably was able to diffuse that, um, uh, that sense of awe that we now think of Benjamin Franklin as being a giant. And um, I suspect that young William Franklin was, uh, had a little more down-to-earth idea about his dad. Did Benjamin write much about young William when he was growing up? No, he didn't. Um, I, he, although there, there's a great deal uh, about William in the letters, hundreds and hundreds of letters, um, he doesn't really write about William. He, he writes about him a little bit in the autobiography, um, uh, particularly the two of them visiting um, the, uh, the paternal family graveyard in England. Um, but except for that, uh, there's very little uh, that he wrote about his son. Did William get a formal education? He did. He did. He, um, he went to Anand's Academy uh, in Philadelphia, which was one of the earliest um, uh, academies for, you know, for young, young men. Um, and, then, uh, and then when he was older, he went to, um, he, he had a private tutor who taught him law, a mutual friend uh, named Joseph Galloway. And then, of course, uh, when, he was, uh, when he was in his 20s, uh, studied in England um, to become a solicitor. He joined the army fairly young. He well, did, and that's, a, that's an interesting part of uh, his story. He, um, he, actually, uh, he actually wanted to be a, a sailor first and, uh, and tried to, um, uh, to stow away on a ship. And his father tells the story of bringing him back from the ship and, and says, oh, it couldn't have been from mistreatment. Um, at home because, uh, because I was a very indulgent father. Uh, but, but William clearly was very headstrong, precocious, um, and uh, w when he saw that he wasn't going to be able to become a mariner, um, he, he enlisted in the, the King's Army and, and, um, and fought in, uh, in King George's War, which was a, one, of the, one of the wars that led up to the French, French and Indian War. When you were writing this book, uh, how much, how did you keep from getting carried away with one or the other biography? Oh, that's, um, I don't know, that, that's um, a kind of portraiture that I've learned to do over the years. This is my eighth, my eighth book of history. And, um, and I've done several uh, dual portraits. I did one of Lincoln and uh, Whitman. Uh, I did one of um, Mary Lincoln and, and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and you learn, um, you know, part of the art of this sort of portraiture is you learn to keep the two people in the same frame. 
uh, because the because the personality of one will illuminate the character of the other. Uh, and if you get too far on one side or the other, uh, you lose that balance and that synergy that you know that creates the vividness of the portrait. So um, it's partly a technical thing, uh, and it's partly that I was genuinely interested in both of these men. I thought that uh, that in their way, each was extraordinary, uh, and each uh, each made an important contribution to American history. So much has been written about Benjamin Franklin. Were you able to find new things about him, or how would you keep it from just being a repetition of all the other things that have been written about oh, him? Oh, I, th I think I found a great deal that was new simply by um, by giving a fresh eye to the uh, to the correspondence. Um, there have been a lot of advances um, in in um, contemporary scholarship. The availability of papers, letters, uh, online. You know, it used to be that if you wanted to read all of the correspondence between Benjamin Franklin and his son, uh, you would have to go to the Yale Library, you would have to go to the um, Library of Congress and spend months there. And then when you were, you were finished copying everything that you had out of, the, out of that, uh, when you started writing the book and you wanted to go back, you couldn't go back. Uh, and now all of this correspondence is, um, is available, it's, it's available online. Uh, so contemporary scholars, myself included, uh, have an opportunity to exhaustively look at these papers uh, and simply by concentrating on the dialogue between, um, between Benjamin Franklin and his son and their mutual friends and other family members, I was able, able to discover a lot of things about Benjamin Franklin that I think were not widely known. How often would you come up with something that you'd tell your friends, hey, listen, listen to this story about Benjamin Franklin, or how often would you spend days and not come up with anything? Uh, you know, the, the, the process of, of uh, research is, um, uh, it's a day in and day out thing, and there, there's some days when you'll discover a great deal that's new, uh, and then you'll go through, you know, you'll go through weeks where you'll simply be reinterpreting things that you've seen before. Um, so it's not a, you know, it's not a matter of, um, of um, a special day where Eureka, all of the, you know, all the bells and whistles uh, sound and you've discovered, you know, that Benjamin Franklin had another mistress um, or that, um, uh, that William Franklin's um, son had an illegitimate child whose mother was unknown. Um, I mean, these things are, they're new. They're new to scholarship and very exciting to me, but not necessarily more important than things that have already been discovered, but not really understood. What do you understand about Benjamin Franklin better now? Um, I understand the pressure that he was under as, um, during, during the revolution, uh, when he was made the minister plenipotentiary, plenipotentiary to France, uh, with the responsibility of bringing, bringing France into the alliance with the United States against the British. He had such incredible responsibilities to the government and to his own family because, remember, America was divided uh, over um, during, the, uh, during the revolution. It was very much a civil war where there were, um, there were enemies to the, you know, enemy, the, the, the um, the Loyalists and the Tories were considered enemies of the government. William Franklin chose during the Revolution uh, to side with the British government. He was governor of New Jersey. He never stepped down from his chair in the government, uh, and he was an enemy of uh, he was an enemy of the government, and therefore potentially an enemy of Benjamin Franklin and his daughter and her children. Um, this was a very, very difficult thing for Benjamin Franklin to go through when, he, when his son was arrested and put in prison. Uh, there was nothing he could do for him because of his position in the government uh, and because of his responsibility to the other family members who, you know, who sided with him. How did William Franklin get to be governor of New Jersey in the first place? Well, um, this goes back to the, um, to the, the embassy that um, Benjamin Franklin was given um, during the um, during the French and Indian War. Uh, he was sent to England um, 
to lobby the parliament to get the Pens, who were the proprietary uh, rulers of uh, Pennsylvania, uh, to, to allow their, their lands to be taxed in order to contribute money to the army which would defend Pennsylvania against the Indians and the French. So Benjamin Franklin was sent as an agent for the assembly and he was allowed to bring his son along as an aide. And his son also was, was there to, um, to get his advanced education in law. And while he was there, William Franklin uh, so endeared himself to the English parliament and to the political powers that be uh, that by the time he was in his mid-20s and late 20s, uh, he, was, um, he was picked, he was, he was tapped uh, to be governor, the royal governor of New Jersey. Uh, that was an extraordinary thing uh, for a young man at that time. But, and he took it very seriously, his commitment to the crown, uh, his responsibilities as a royal governor of New Jersey. Um, and of course that was the beginning of the division between Benjamin Franklin and, and his son. How did the colonial government work there? I mean, the governor was appointed by the, the king, or the crown, and, and then how else was it governed? Well, the governor, um, all of the colonies had their governors who were appointed by the, uh, appointed by the crown. Um, but all of the, all of the, I believe all of the colonial govern governments also had an assembly, which was popularly uh, elected and, um, and represented, the, um, represented the workers and the, and the mechanics and the farmers. Um, the, there was a sort of bicameral legislature in most of the colonies where there was an upper house uh, that, was, uh, that represented the, uh, the richer people in the colony and then there was the, the more popular assembly. So it was kind of similar to, to the bicameral government that you would have in England uh, or in the United States. What kind of clout did the governor have? Well, the governor, uh, the governor, as the representative of the crown, um, had not exactly veto power, but he had a great deal, great deal of power um, over the assembly. Uh, and there was a constant tension between these provincial assemblies um, and the and the governor, uh, which was handled with more and less grace, depending on who the governor was, and as the revolution came on, you know, as the, as the colonies uh, became more and more restive and in rebellion against the crown, this job of being a colonial governor became more and more difficult. Well, was New Jersey a proprietary state colony? Um, it was, yeah, it was. It was more, a little more complicated. Uh, New Jersey's politics was phenomenally complicated. In Pennsylvania, it was a proprietary proprietary colony, but it was all owned by the Penn family. In New Jersey, there was a proprietary colony, but the ownership, the actual ownership of the land, it was deeded out to several different, uh, several different proprietors. Uh, so that was even more complicated, but I don't think I want to get into that. <laughs> One of the things you talk about in your book is the, uh, the proposed colony of Vandalia. Can you explain what that was? Well, that was, um, that was a, a, a dream uh, that nearly came true um, of uh, William Franklin and his father uh, and some other um, basically real estate developers uh, to buy a whole lot of land from the Indians to get it deeded over, uh, which is very complicated and required. I mean, first you had to buy it from the Indians and then you had to get the king's approval to own it. Um, but um, the, the actual uh, colony, that you're, the proposed colony, uh, existed um, in sort of in, in the area that's now Indiana. Uh, it was huge, and, um, and the idea was that this sort of uh, consortium uh, of wealthy colonists and, and Englishmen uh, was going to buy up this land uh, and create yet another colony. It was kind of ironic because um, uh, at the time, a lot of these people were, you know, they were um, on the cusp of becoming revolutionaries, and here they were, you know, planning to get fantastically rich by creating another proprietary colony. Well, you're right about Benjamin Franklin wanted to undo the Penn's proprietorship 
in Pennsylvania and have it taken away from them at the same time was trying to create one of his own. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's ironic. So your, your book is The War in Ben Franklin's House. When did the war start showing first signs of a well, breakage? I think one of the tragedies here is that um, Benjamin Franklin and William Franklin, even though Benjamin Franklin was in England, basically doing, um, doing the business of a colonial agent in England representing the American assemblies in the par against the parliament, uh, and his son Benjamin was the royal governor of New Jersey, you know, and very much on the side of the king in, in, in America. For many years, they were on the same page in that they both desired uh, the, um, the crown and the, uh, and the colonial governments to make peace. They did not want an end to the empire. They did not want America to leave the empire. And they did everything in their power on both sides to compromise and to try to, you know, try to make things work out. Uh, but from the time of the Tax Act, uh, the, um, uh, the Stamp Act, the Stamp Act, was, which was in the 18, excuse me, the um, 1760s, the mid-1760s, um, and then um, after the, you know, the Stamp Act riots, uh, where you know Americans hung all of the tax collectors in, in effigy, um, and then later the um, uh, the the anti mutiny acts, when uh, the British sent the troops to Boston, and then the Boston massacre in 1770, uh, things began to heat up, and um, and the American you know the American colonies uh, came closer and closer to rebellion. Uh, William sided with the king because he was the royal governor of New Jersey and took that charge very, very seriously. It was a sacred, sacred uh, responsibility to him. Meanwhile, Benjamin Franklin, as the representative of the Pennsylvania Assembly, assembly the, um, the Massachusetts Assembly, the Maryland Assembly, he became more and more radicalized. So. You've got the father in England, Benjamin, becoming more and more radicalized, more and more revolutionary, and his son, as well, the governor of New Jersey, taking the king's part there. And they were living in different worlds. They saw different things. They had, they, they, they had a, a very different idea about what would be best for the people. Was there much of a revolutionary sentiment in New Jersey at the time, like, like there was in Massachusetts and Virginia? Uh, Massachusetts was uh, was far more radical than New Jersey. New Jersey was um, the statistics that are generally uh, brought forward is that during the revolution, a third of the colonists were for revolution, a third of them were against revolution. They wanted to be loyalists, and a third were undecided. And I think that New Jersey, uh, at best, would be considered an ideal proportion of one-third, one-third, and one-third. There were probably more royalists, there were more Tories and loyalists in New Jersey than there were in a lot of other, uh, a lot of other colonies. Uh, Massachusetts, Massachusetts, for instance, was much more radical. Were there many incidents in New Jersey, revolutionary incidents, that William Franklin had to put down? There were, yeah. During the, uh, both the, uh, the Stamp Act, um, in the in the 1760s and around the time of the uh, the Boston Massacre, when the British troops fired on uh, on basically um, fairly innocent uh, citizens who were protesting in Boston, uh, during that time there were there were a lot of uh, demonstrations, um, some of them quite violent, uh, in Freeport, uh, New Jersey, in Newark. Um, and, uh, and he was involved in, in putting those down, not violently, but um, uh, using the powers of persuasion that he had as governor to, to quell this, uh, this revolutionary fervor in New Jersey. Well, meanwhile, back in England, was, was there some moment that caused Benjamin Franklin, some incident that caused him to switch from being, from wanting to remain an Englishman to wanting independence? I don't know if there was a single incident. Um, I know that one of the few times that we have on record that, uh, that Benjamin Franklin was known to weep uh, was shortly after the Boston Massacre. Uh, 
Um, he had grown, remember, he had grown up in Boston. Uh, and to see these uh, fellow citizens uh, of his home colony um, slaughtered by the British, I think that was, a, that was something of a turning point. So that would have been 1770. Um, also, the, uh, around the time of the Boston Tea Party, uh, there was a, an infa infamous incident uh, where Benjamin Franklin uh, allowed to be published certain letters of the governor of Massachusetts, um, which he thought were, was a, were actually going to promote peace between, between the two sides. But, but it just caused more, uh, you know, uh, more rancor on the part of the Bostonians. Um, and that leading up to the Boston Tea Party um, caused the, uh, the parliament in, in England uh, basically to accuse Benjamin Franklin of, um, of the entire revolution. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was brought up before the parliament. Uh, he was excoriated and uh, sort of drummed out and, and, uh, and made, uh, made a laughing stock uh, as a man who couldn't be trusted, a liar, someone who stole someone else's correspondence. Uh, and really, after that point, uh, that would have been 1773, uh, was never really welcome in England again, although he stayed a little longer after that. Uh, that place where he had been so revered, the place that he had made his home for much of his adult life, uh, he was no longer welcome. So that might be considered a, something of a turning point. Were there a lot of letters going back and forth between William and Benjamin as Benjamin started drifting toward supporting revolution? Yes, uh, the correspondence is ongoing. It doesn't really, uh, doesn't even subside until, uh, until around the time of the Boston Tea Party. Um, and uh, it's fascinating because you get to see that really they're on the same page from the time of the Stamp Act. Um, they're both saying the Stamp Act can't possibly, it can't be good for the English, can't be good for the Americans. Um, and they're both, and they're equally horrified by the Boston Massacre in the, in the 1770s. So um, you actually get to see the evolution of, uh, of the change. Benjamin, in his correspondence, begins to com complain more and more about the corruption of the parliament. And, um, and you get uh, William on his side saying, <clears throat> well, you know, England doesn't have any monopoly on madness and corruption. And um, uh, if you were here in America, uh, you would see just how corrupt and and crazy um, the American government, <laughs> the American government is. So, um, it's really fascinating to look at that correspondence and see how they gradually grow apart. Can you see them kind of trying to persuade each other? Yes, yes. And up until the seventeen um, 1770s, um, William is praying every day that his father will please come home. I mean, there are a number of reasons why he wants his father to come home. Uh, he's been left, you know, in, in um, he's been left in charge of the family um, while Benjamin is um, is doing his embassy in, in England, and um, and also he 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 really wants his father to return to America to make the argument. He believes that his father is the only person with, a, with sufficient um, uh, gravitas and the powers of persuasion to persuade the Continental Congress not to uh, declare independence. You, I, I want to ask you about the, maybe it's jumping back a little bit, but the, the relationship with the Penn family, because the, you, you write in there when, when William was appointed governor of New Jersey, the Penns were appalled at that. And Benjamin Franklin had his issues with the Penn family. And you write a, a pamphlet uh, that the Penns wrote that was that says became a laundry list for every charge against Franklin, however far-fetched. Here lies the man who plotted to become governor himself, who had pilfered his electrical experiments from other scientists, who had purchased his honorary degrees, who in spite of his advanced age had been an incorrigible lecher, whose son William, the well-known bastard, was the son of a kitchen wench named Barbara, and on and on. So uh, they had a common foe in the Penn family? Uh, they did, um, but actually the, uh, what you were just quoting uh, was, um, was a laundry list um, that came uh, 
It came from an election which Benjamin Franklin actually lost um, to the assembly. And uh, this, was, uh, this was in the, uh, uh, I, I believe the 17, 1760s, late 1760s. Uh, he came home, uh, he got involved in local politics. He was only home for a couple of years. He ran again for the assembly and lost. But at that time, uh, Benjamin Franklin had made so many enemies in America um, for a number of reasons that there was um, one of these mudslinging, uh, one of these mudslinging um, uh, elections for which America is is infamous, um, and uh, that's where that that's where that laundry list came from. So it wasn't generated just by the pens; it was generated by all of the enemies of the Franklin, the Franklins. When uh, Benjamin, how many t different times did Benjamin go to England? Well, he he went. He first went in um, in the 1750s in order to uh, in order to bring suit uh, against the Penn family to make them uh, to make them taxable. Um, he was there for seven years. He went home for two years, um, and then he went. He was returned um, to. Uh, the, the Assembly of Massachusetts, excuse me, the Assembly of Pennsylvania sent him again uh, to England um, in order to try to get uh, the Parliament out of the way to get, to get the colony actually adopted by the king so that the Parliament wouldn't be involved. Uh, and that was the second embassy. Um, and William was with him on how many of these? William was, William was only with him on the first. Um, William, uh, William was there until 1760. 1762, when William was appointed governor of New Jersey. At that point, William went home. His father came home a couple of years later, excuse me, a couple of months later. Um, and then his father returned two years later while William remained as governor of New Jersey. William never went back with his father on the second embassy. So they, they went years without seeing each other. They did, yeah. And was William involved with the Franklin family business back in Philadelphia while he was governor of New Jersey and Benjamin was in England? No. Um, that, that's sort of interesting because um, Franklin, of course, was an incredible entrepreneur. He had this newspaper. He had, um, he had Poor Richard's Almanac. He had a stationery store. Um, and while he was in England, his wife mostly took over, <laughs> took over those responsibilities. So although... Um, uh, William did have a uh, familiar responsibility. Uh, he was concerned uh, with the welfare of his mother and his sister uh, and their families. Um, uh, he was not involved with the family business. Were there letters going back and forth between William and Deborah, Benjamin Franklin's wife, and then uh, their daughter? Well, after, um, after William Franklin became governor of New Jersey, uh, he was living within a couple of hours' travel of his mother and his sister. Uh, they went back and forth. Uh, there didn't need to be a whole lot of correspondence because they were very close as a family. Um, uh, William was living in Burlington, New Jersey. His mother was living across the river in, uh, in Philadelphia, and they spent a great deal of time together. So there didn't need to be a lot of correspondence. With, his, with Benjamin's wife and daughter, were they involved in the revolutionary spirit at all, or did they kind of stay out of politics? Uh, they, were both, um, they were both very loyal to Benjamin's point of view. They loved William, uh, but when, when William decided to, um, after 1776, when William decided to remain uh, in the governor's seat, uh, and not to, you know, not to join the revolution. Um, they were very concerned about him, and they loved him, uh, but they could not, they couldn't side with him. They, they really, um, it was just too dangerous for this, for, for the family members to go in William's direction. They sided with, with Benjamin. So William was a sitting governor when the <clears throat> colonies declared independence. Yes. What happened then? What did he do? What, what? Actions were taken. Well, um, most of the uh, most of the governors, colonial governors, either stepped down um, or or became collaborators in the revolution. Uh, William Franklin was the only governor who remained in his chair. He, they said, you're, "He said you're going to have to carry me out of here." 
um, and they literally did that. Uh, they came and got him, and, um, and uh, he was tried uh, by a tribunal, um, and he was taken to Connecticut where he was, uh, where he was imprisoned. Um, he was very stubborn and uh, was a man of principle and, and believed that his responsibility to the king came first. He was in a dungeon. Um, not at the beginning. Uh, at first, he was in uh, he was in very comfortable quarters uh, for a few months. Um, but he was so um, he was so angry and he was so uh, loyal to the king uh, that he began um, he began writing pardons for um, for anyone who agreed um, that they would um, that they would consider the possibility of remaining loyal to the king. He wrote pardons for these people so that um, if the if the uh, if the British troops came to your house and you had a pardon from uh, William Franklin, they wouldn't burn your house down. Now this was considered um, uh, completely beyond the pale. I mean, it wasn't bad enough that William Franklin had had refused to leave the governor's mansion, but now even though he'd been given a, some cushy uh, um, sort of parole in Connecticut, um, he was writing these pardons. At that point, uh, they put him in the Litchfield Jail, which was uh, one of the most horrible uh, and sordid um, uh, dungeons uh, in America. And he was in solitary confinement there for uh, the better part of a year uh, in, a, in a cell with no, with no furniture, straw on the floor. Um, it was horrible. Could you tell in the correspondence between father and son when the break was? Was there anger? Well, the break, uh, the break had taken place um, uh, before that. Uh, in 1775, Benjamin Franklin came home from England uh, and sat in the Con Continental Congress. Um, and at that point, he tried very, very hard to persuade his son um, to come over to the side of the revolution because Benjamin Franklin was a visionary. Um, William Franklin was a practical man, a sensible man. Uh, he had reason to believe that eventually the, um, the crown would prevail in this conflict. Um, but his father was right. Uh, his father was a visionary. And he tried to convince his son to step aside, if not to become a revolutionary, at least to go into exile in England. Um, he tried his hardest, um, but William was stiff-necked and, um, and believed in the cause of the crown. Why didn't he take the practical approach and, and s go off to England while the revolution was happening? Well, he had, there were, there were very intelligent people who believed that um, the revolution would fail. And in fact, Two years into the revolution, there were still a lot of people, including George Washington, who wasn't really sure that, uh, that the colonies would prevail in, in, in their revolution. And um, so William Franklin was not, he wasn't completely mad in remaining a loyalist. Um, and um, he, he had the strength of his convictions. I think this is one of the things we have to admire him for. Um, he didn't give in to popular opinion. Uh, he didn't take the easy way. Um, there were other people like William Franklin um, who had the strength of convictions that he had, but he was the most famous and the most influential. But he could have made his escape to, <coughs> to New York that was occupied by the British, I suppose, at the time, and, and still fought the good fight. He did end up in New York. Um, he, began, uh, he, he began to be a counter-revolutionary. He was the president of the Associated Loyalists, who were basically uh, they were basically guerrilla fighters for the counter-revolution. Um, so he did go to New York and stayed there as long as he could. But after the surrender of Cornwallis in 1782, it was pretty clear that um, uh, that the uh, the war was over and that he was not going to prevail. You uh, right, uh, backing up to the time when uh, William Franklin is in the dungeon, um, that his wife fell ill, and William asked for permission to visit his dying wife. Yes, um, this is a very sad part of the story. Um, William 
had a very good marriage uh, with Elizabeth, uh, his wife. We met in England, and they were very devoted to each other. And um, after he was taken away from uh, from their home in New Jersey, um, she grieved for him. Uh, she was in poor he poor health, um, and when she was on his her her deathbed. Uh, he appealed, actually, to George Washington. This is a wonderful letter, an eloquent letter, which I discovered, uh, which had not been published before, um, in connection with William Franklin, and uh, where he appeals to George Washington, uh, please, to let me go and visit my, you know, let me out of this dungeon for long enough to see my wife uh, you said before he did, she died. He dies. invoked his father's name in that letter. He did. He did. And that actually, that was one of my, my discoveries. It was the only letter in which um, uh, I ever, in which William Franklin, during the Revolution, actually invokes his father's name, and he says, "My father, my father, still loves me, um, and uh, under these circumstances, I think that even he would approve of my going to visit my wife. He always loved my wife." Um, it's a very poignant uh, letter, and uh, George Washington, of course, who was uh, a very compassionate man. Um, tried to honor that request and forwarded a letter to Congress saying, this man's wife's dying. Uh, we don't think that he really presents all that much of a danger at the moment to the, to the revolution. Um, but that request was denied. How did William eventually get out of jail? <clears throat> he was visited by, um, by one of the commissioners of the prisons and um, one of the responsibilities of, um, of wartime responsibilities uh, of, the, um, uh, of the penitentiaries or the, the prisoners is to make sure that, um, that officers uh, and enlisted men uh, are given uh, quarters and medical treatment uh, that is befitting to their rank. And um, one of the commissioners came to visit uh, William Franklin's cell in Litchfield and saw him living in such squalor and he was so sick he was you know at the on the verge of death he uh, he reported this to the Congress <clears throat> and um, steps were taken after that uh, there was a p petition a formal petition made to Congress um, and his brother-in-law Sally's husband um, uh, Mr. Bache intervened on his behalf. Other people intervened on his behalf, probably Lafayette, uh, who was at that point part of the American, uh, the American army, but he was a very good friend of Benjamin Franklin's. Um, so that there's reason to believe that, uh, that Benjamin Franklin may have been very much aware of these, uh, of these different pieces of the puzzle that led to Williams being let out of prison. Any letters go back and forth between Benjamin and William during this time? There couldn't be. There couldn't be any correspondence. There could not be any correspondence between Benjamin Franklin and his son at that point because of the sensitivity of Benjamin Franklin's position as the minister to France. Uh, it, was too, it was far too dangerous. Um, people were being imprisoned uh, for, for having any sort of correspondence with the likes of, Benj of uh, William Franklin uh, loyalists, traitors, uh, and Benjamin Franklin would not have put himself, his government, or his family uh, in that position by corresponding with his son, and, and his son would not have put, put his father and his family in that position. Uh, and that's one of, the, one of the things I learned. You asked me earlier, you know, what did you learn about Benjamin Franklin? <clears throat> well, I learned that during the Revolution, in addition to all of his other responsibilities, his government, his, his official corresp uh, uh, duties uh, as, an, as an emissary to France, he also had this, you know, this incredible responsibility to his family. Uh, remember, he was now taking, he was responsible for his grandson, William's son, William Temple Franklin, uh, was living with him in France and, and working a, a, as his aide. So, it was a, really a tragic uh, situation for the entire family. Speaking of uh, Temple Franklin, he uh, fathered a child out of wedlock, the uh, third generation of Franklin's. Yes, in the family, family tradition. Um, 
he had not one but two children out of wedlock. Um, that's part of the story that uh, it, it's very complicated. Now, uh, William, when he was let out of jail, was was it a prisoner exchange, or were there terms of his release that he wouldn't participate in the war, or what? what was, there what was, was a the prisoner. There was a prisoner exchange. Um, I believe that um, beyond that, uh, the, it was unconditional. I think he was. It was a prisoner exchange. He went to New York. Joined the army. Uh, he 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 tried to join the British army, and they wouldn't let him. Uh, but he be, but he became the president of the Associated Loyalists, which, as I said, was a, a sort of a guerrilla counter-revolutionary uh, uh, army. Um, but I think that there were no conditions uh, attached to his uh, to the prisoner exchange. He was free, basically. What did he do when the war ended? When the war ended, he went back to England, uh, and um, really, I mean. He, he was no longer welcome in the United States, that's for sure, um, and um, and had a very good life in England. He was highly respected, had a good pension. Uh, he remarried there. Um, was he a practicing attorney in England? No, he was he was retired. He was retired. How old was he by the time all this happened? He would have been um, in his 50s uh, by the end of the war, probably his mid-50s. Uh, he lived a long life. He died in, in his uh, in his mid 80s, um, and um, had a very good life, and was highly respected in England for for what he, had, you know, what he had contributed to the revolution uh, on the part of the crown. Did he write anything, uh, books or memoirs or diaries? He didn't. He didn't. There are letters. Um, there are a lot of letters, but uh, he he was not a was not a writer. Did the say. Did the correspondence with his father resume? No. He, um, another sad part of the story is you get the feeling from the correspondence and from the, uh, what's known about their last uh, visit together. When Benjamin Franklin was finally uh, allowed to go home uh, and leave his position in France, he stopped in, um, in England at the Isle of Wight uh, in 17, I think it was, would have, this would have been 1789, um, on his way back to America uh, and spent a little bit of time with William there. And William was hoping for a reconciliation and had every reason to believe from the correspondence he had with his father that his father would be open to that. But it turns out, uh, from what we know from the diaries and letters, uh, that have recorded uh, the details of that meeting, that it was strictly a business meeting. There was no reconciliation, uh, that his father simply wanted William to deed over basically all of his property in, his, in America uh, to the grandson, uh, William Temple Franklin. So it, it's, a, it's a very sad ending to the story. Uh, you said you wrote how many other books? Uh, well, I've written 20 books. Oh. Uh, but uh, eight, eight books of eight books of biography. What are some of your other topics? Uh, I've written three books about Benj uh, <laughs> not Benjamin Franklin. I've written three books about Abraham Lincoln. Um, probably the best known is uh, the Lincoln's Portrait of a Marriage about Mary and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, I wrote a biography of Bob Dylan. Uh, that's uh, a lot of people have read and talked about. Um, I've written a biography of Nat King Cole. Um, who else? Uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay, the poet. How do you choose who to write about? I just choose topics. I, I choose people that, I, that fascinate me. Uh, usually there's some sort of a mystery about them, uh, as I mentioned earlier. Um, the other thing I noticed, uh, I was thinking about this before we met today, is that all of my biography subjects have been in one way or the other, self-taught, autodidacts. Uh, Benjamin Franklin is, you know, one of the most famous, a, a man who taught himself languages and mathematics, and uh, and Abraham Lincoln is another, uh, almost entirely self-taught. Uh, Amy Semple McPherson, the, the evangelist, uh, self-taught. Um, I, I guess I'm fascinated by people who create themselves. Uh, and particularly American characters, because I think of them, you know, Americans as being so original, uh, and and we have this marvelous history of 
of people who are who create themselves, like Bob Dylan. You know, is another example of somebody who was basically self-taught and self-created. What is your education background? Well, I don't have any advanced degrees. <laughs> Actually, I'm a, kind of a self. Are you an autodidact? I'm an autodidact. Uh, I went to college. I went to Kenyon College, and I had a wonderful education there. Uh, but that, that, after that, um, you know, I've taught myself um, Latin and Greek. And I'm, as a as a historian, I'm largely self-taught, uh, which my critics love to talk about. Um, and. Uh, but beyond that, um, usually the, the subjects are, are people that I admire. I've never written a book about somebody who I didn't like. I think that would be very difficult. Um, so Why did you teach yourself Latin and Greek? So that I could understand the English language. Uh, I, I began my career as a poet, um, and um, one of the things I learned early on is that uh, the, the, understand, the deep understanding of English is one of the things that makes a, a poet uh, really effective. And one of the ways you learn, you go deep in, into your own language is to learn the roots of that language. So Latin and Greek was important to me. Is writing a full-time job for you? Uh, it has been for most of my life. Uh, uh, I'm 69 now. I'm, I'm considering whether I'm going to write another uh, book of nonfiction or whether I'll write poetry. Um, but yes, it, it has been mostly a full-time job, and, and, and a very pleasant one. Can you talk about um, Benjamin Franklin's will and how he addressed William in his will? Oh, this is one of the saddest parts. I mean, I mentioned their, their, non, their non-reconciliation, but um, I think one of the cruelest things that Benjamin Franklin ever did in his last will and testament, um, he cut his son entirely out of the will, and he left us. He left one sentence. Um, I leave my son uh, only that only as much as he attempted to deprive me of, which is basically nothing. Um, uh, and um, that seen by a lot of people as sort of the dead man's curse on his son. A very cruel thing to to put in a sacred document. We also say Benjamin Franklin always kept track of the money he lent William. And did William pay him back, or did Benjamin forgive him in his will? Well, part of that final uh, final settlement and, and um, Benjamin Franklin uh, insisting that his son deed all of that property over to the to the grandson uh, was an attempt to settle those debts. But um, you know, I would say that by the time uh, uh, by the time they parted company at the end, uh, there was nothing owed on either side. Did Benjamin ever refer to William in any writing after that? Uh, I don't think he ever did, no, just in the will. He, he never forgave his son. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking to Daniel Mark Epstein. He is the author of this book, The Loyal Son, The War in Benjamin Franklin's House. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.